how many people are happy to be here today? So am I. I believe God has given me a message for you, and I think it's important because the devil tried to stop it from happening. I got a phone call Friday morning said, can you deploy to Texas? And I said, when? And they said, well, today or tomorrow. And so I said, well, uh, sure, if I have to. So that's what I do. And um, praise God, it's been delayed, and I'm just on call. So uh, anyway, I'm happy to be here today. So. Growing up as kids, there were three of us Leonard boys, and uh, we'd get in trouble with Dad once in a while if we used the wrong tool for the wrong job. Screwdrivers went, weren't meant to be crowbars, and uh, wrenches weren't meant to be hammers. Unfortunately, in the world, we ask secular institutions to do what only Jesus can do. We try using the wrong tool for the wrong job. Uh, for work, uh, part of the leadership development that we do, uh, we had to read a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. <clears throat> the uh, sequel to that book is called The Anatomy of Peace by the Arbinger Institute. And it has some good ideas and things. Um, for instance, it notes that parties in conflict all want the same solution. They want the other party to change. <laughs> a fundamental change must occur in us if we're going to invite change in others. If we spend more time and effort helping things go right than dealing with things that go wrong. And we won't invite people to change if our interactions with them are primarily in order just to get them to change. So I was reading this book and it's purely secular, but I think there's some uh, nuggets of wisdom in there that we could probably use. Um, as they say back on the farm, eat the hay and spit out the sticks. So. <laughs> It, put, it brings out that I need to put time and effort into building relationships, and that's kind of what uh, we're looking for here at this church, uh, making these connections, not only with uh, each other, but connecting to Christ and building that relationship and then going out into the world and uh, connecting with our fellow man. We need to see their humanity. We see that they are created in God's image, therefore worthy of good treatment and honor. If we view others as inferior in our hearts, and the book says that we're at war with them. When our hearts are at war, we can't see situations clearly. We can't consider other positions seriously enough to solve difficult problems, and we end up provoking hurtful behaviors and others. And we see this throughout history, you know, the Crusades. Uh, more recently, uh, the Indian relocation programs, where we took all the Indians and put them on reservations because we saw them as inferior. When we go out into the world, we need to seek to join people in their world. We create a space for helping to invite them to change. We invite them to not allow their heart to go to war towards us. Now, we can't make others change, but we can invite them to change. We do what we can to make the environment invitational towards peace. There are six things that the book says that we can do uh, to create this environment. One is to obtain a heart of peace. We see people as people, not as objects, not as inferior, but real people with real needs, real hopes, real fears, real dreams. Build relationship with others and build relationship on the individual's level as well. Listen and learn, teach and communicate, and the very last is correct. So it all sounds great, right? There's one little problem. 
uh, people may change their hearts to a point, but they can never change their hearts to the point of changing their nature. A dog is a dog, and a bull is a bull. So a big bull standing out in the field, he might come to the revelation someday, I'm going to change, you know. I'm tired of charging people whenever they come into my pen. I'm going to change. <laughs> and he may try that for a while and do a pretty good job, but you walk out in there and you raise, wave a great big red flag, guess what? His instinct, his nature is going to kick in. He's going to charge you. We saw this work to a point uh, in Iraq when I was there in 2007 to 2008 through uh, civil affairs. We went out into uh, the neighborhoods and said, what do you need? Well, it'd be nice to have power more than two hours a day. It'd be nice to have running water. It'd be nice to have sewage that actually ran under the streets and not through the streets. Um, and so we worked with them, and we helped build those relationships and build that trust, but there was still that nature that we couldn't change. And so we saw some success, but not total success. So we can make the environment invitational by seeing them as real people with real problems, build relationships with them, and then bring them to Jesus where they can receive a new nature. New nature. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For otherwise, apart from me, that is, cut off from vital union with me, you can do nothing. And that's the amplified version. I kind of like that version. Somebody told me it was the ladies' version because it's so wordy and everything. <laughs> uh, it really brings out some good points in there. So, We are connected to Christ the vine and other Christ followers as brothers and sisters. In church and small groups, we learn who God is, who we are in Him, and how to minister to others through prayer, edification, and encouragement. So the church here is kind of a training ground. This is where we learn how to pray for each other, and it's a safe environment to do that. This training ground prepares us as ambassadors to go out and connect to all the world and make disciples as we interact with the lost world, sharing the hope and the truth that we have. To create an environment that encourages them to change. However, if we mis misrepresent God and who he is, we will fail in our mission. And we saw this fail uh, again throughout history. The Crusades uh, and different things. Uh, because we had misrepresented God. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples. Jesus came up and said to them, All authority... All power of absolute rule in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Help the people to learn of me, believe in me, and obey my words, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, remaining with you perpetually, regardless of circumstance, and on every occasion, even to the end of age. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ. And if you know an ambassador, his job is to go and give the message or, you know, whatever. So the president sends an ambassador to Israel. The ambassador's not speaking for himself. He's speaking for the, on behalf of the president. And so uh, we have to make sure that our message is accurate. You know, you'd be a bad ambassador if the president says, hey, I want you to go to Israel and tell them, you know, that... Uh, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And the ambassador gets there and says, we're going to do A, B, and C. So, 
So in 2 Corinthians, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is grafted in, joined to him by faith in him as Savior. He is a new creature, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things, the previous moral and spiritual condition, that's that nature, have passed away. Behold, new things have come because spiritual awakening brings a new life. But all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, making us acceptable to him. How many people know that we're accepted by him? That's a good feeling, right? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we've all been called to the ministry whether we know it or not. So that by our example, we might bring others to him. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, but canceling them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That is, restoration to favor with God. How many people know that we're at favor with God now? That's what the word says. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around that. What does that all mean? So today I'm going to try to unpack that. So we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We are, as Christ's representatives, uh, plead with you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So as ambassadors, we go with a message that is not our own, but from whom we represent. If we misrepresent God and who he is, we will fail in our mission of making disciples. Wrong knowledge produces wrong results. If we're not getting the desired result, it usually stems from a misconception about God and how he deals with us. So where do these misconceptions come from? Many of them actually come from religion, and even the way that we interpret Scripture or have had in Scripture interpreted for us. For example, many Christians are still trying to relate to God based on the way he dealt with people under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, the Law, and the New Covenant are not compatible. And how many people know we're under a New Covenant? Amen. Amen. We must ensure we actually represent God as good ambassadors if we want to succeed in our mission of making disciples. God is who he is, regardless of what we think of him. You'll never experience God and who he is greater than your concept of him. So if you have this concept of God being a, re a mean ogre who brings calamity into your life to teach you something, then that's what you're going to receive from him. If you feel God is still dealing with this as he dealt with people under the old covenant, then you'll misrepresent him and give people an impression that God is of God that's actually going to drive them away or make them serve him out of fear. We can't mix Old Testament law and New Testament law. Due to, many Christians, due to this, many Christians misunderstand who God is, and because of it, they doubt God's willingness to use his ability on their behalf because they still think that God is dealing with us according to sin in our life. They still think God is imputing sin unto us. But in 2 Corinthians 5.19 it says, That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sin against them, but canceling them. And he has committed to us again the message of reconciliation. So the misconception of the Old Testament law is that it was to help us. A lot of people think, well, it was to help us. It gave us, you know, one through 10,000 rules. And if we could do those, then God would favor us. He would accept us, right? The only problem was it's impossible. 
However, as New Testament believers, we're not under the Old Testament law. We'll get into that a little bit later. The mindset that God is a harsh, demanding God comes from the Old Testament law. So again, if you primarily spend a lot of your time reading the Old Testament and the law and how he dealt with people under the law, you're going to get this misrepresentation of who God is today and how he deals with us. One reason that people don't love God is because they don't really know him or they have a misconception of him. Who would want to serve a God like that? All right? He's been misrepresented as the one who sent earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, or strikes people with cancer. But if you truly know God, you know he's not that way. There's a lot of confusion about who he is. He has only good things in store for us. According to Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans and thoughts I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace and well-being, and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And John 10.10 says that the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came to give life and give it abundantly. So when people say God is good, all the time. Exactly. Your response is revealing. So it tells a lot. Do we really believe that? That he's good all the time? If we read him through the Old Testament, we're like, well, sometimes. Unless you pick up sticks on the Sabbath or something. So a lack of understanding the true character of God has made us susceptible to doubt and unbelief. It keeps us from fully appreciating the love of God. It gives us a poor image of who he is, and that is the reason that we struggle in our life. You can still be born again and not fully know God. Paul struggled with this in Philippians 3. You can trace any problem in your life back to the lack of relationship with God. You're not using God to satisfy you. Rather, you're depending upon something or someone else. But you can't really trust someone you don't really know. So again, as we connect to Jesus and connect to each other, find out who God truly is, we can learn that we can really trust him. So the problem with the law, Hebrews 7, 18 and 19 says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is canceled because of its weakness and uselessness, because of its inability to justify the sinner before God. For the law never made anything perfect, while on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we now continually draw near to God. The Old Testament law is not for the New Testament believer. In the Old Testament example of God dealing with people in 2 Kings 1, 2 through 4, if you remember that story, uh, there was a king and he was dying. Elijah went to him and said, because you were seeking other gods about whether or not you're going to be healed, uh, you're not going to be healed, you're going to die. So the king sends out, a captain and a hundred soldiers to go capture this Elijah. And Elijah, uh, the captain shows up and says, if you're a man of God, you need to come down and come see the king. Elijah said, well, if I'm a man of God, I send fire down from heaven and destroy you all. And that happened twice. And then the third guy, third captain, he showed up. He's pretty smart. He said, have mercy on me. And God told Elijah, go ahead, go with him. I'll protect you. But if you don't understand this properly is going to give you the wrong impression of God. That if I make him mad, he's going to strike me with a thunderbolt or burn me from high, you know, fire from heaven or something. So in Luke 9, 51, you know, Jesus is the accurate representation of who God is, right? In Luke 9, 51, James and John, they want to do the same thing, right? Because they're going through Samaria uh, and the Samaritans who had accepted Christ as the Messiah as Jesus was going through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, well, now they turned on him and said, well, if you're going to 
you know, hang out with the Jews. We don't want any part of you. So James and John said, hey, can we call down fire from heaven? And Jesus rebuked them. So again, Jesus is the accurate representation of who God is. And Jesus rebuked them because they were trying to emulate Elijah. So if you try to deal with people based on the old covenant, you could end up being rebuked by God as well. In the old covenant, a person couldn't be born again because Jesus hadn't uh, been the firstborn yet and they couldn't get a new nature. They couldn't be changed. Their sins couldn't be wiped out. And this was one reason that God dealt harshly with people in the Old Testament. When the Israelites would move in, he said, kill everything. That's babies, women, children, animals. Because their hearts could not be changed. They were under the dominion of Satan and demons and had no authority over uh, his power. Satan's power was rampant under the Old Testament. The spirit of rebellion caused God's strictness because they couldn't be delivered from that spirit. But thank God we can. Amen? Amen. Because of the new covenant, we have different rights, different authority, and different privileges. And I think that's one of those things that, again, trying to wrap our head around. What does that mean? Old Testament sin had to be dealt with like an infection or a cancer. It had to be cut off to preserve the rest of the culture and the entire human race. There are some theologians that think that if God didn't intervene as strongly as he did, there wouldn't have been a virgin left in the world for Jesus to be born through. Now that we have a cure, there's no need to cut it off or cut it out, right? It's wrong for us to be executing the wrath, judgment, and punishment of God the same way as before Jesus came to provide a remedy for their sins. So the law was a certain number of requirements you had to do to get God's favor. Thinking that God moves in your life proportional to your performance, which is common today, is the law, right? The law was written for Israelites and Jews. Romans 3.19 says the law was only given to and intended for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. Because it says, now we know that whatever the law of Moses says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And if you remember your Bible history, the law wasn't given to the Gentile nation. It was given to the Jews. So that the excuses of every mouth may be silenced from protesting and that all the world may be held accountable to God and subject to his judgment. Romans 7.4 includes believers who maybe think that, well, maybe I'm the new Israel or replacement theology or whatever. Romans 7, 4 says, Therefore, my fellow believers, you too died to the law through the crucified body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six says the strength of sin is the law. Romans 7, 9 says the purpose of the law was to make sin come alive. Again, it wasn't to help you. It wasn't to make you better. So the, the, the reason the law had to come was for the first 2,000 years, God was not imputing sin unto man. And there was all kinds of sin going on. And people started comparing themselves amongst themselves, saying, well, I'm not as bad as this guy over here. I'm pretty good. So we really didn't realize how sinful we were. And then the law came, and it's like, wow, I guess I'm pretty bad. No standard existed, so God gave the law his standard to show us how far we missed the mark. The law was given for all the self-righteous people who thought they were pretty good. In James, he talks about if we break the law at one point, we're breaking the whole thing. So people would be like, well, I've done the top nine, you know, or top 9,000. 
So, however, God doesn't grade on a curve. We must keep them all, or we need to trust in a Savior. This was the purpose of the law to show you how guilty you were, leading to the conclusion that you're in, as Pastor Kim says, deep kimchi. You need a Savior. Sin had already beaten mankind, but they didn't even know it. One of the biggest deceptions the devil has is to get the church to promote the law as a set of rules to live by in order to get God to love and accept you and move in your life. And then all Satan has to do is come along and say, yeah, but I saw what you did on Monday. I saw how you treated your wife. I saw you kick the dog. And then it's guilt and condemnation. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9 is contrasting the Old Testament law and New Testament grace. It says, He has qualified us, making us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant of salvation through Christ, not of the letter of a written code, but of the Spirit. For the letter, the law, kills by revealing sin and demanding obedience, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death engraved in letters on stones, the covenant of the law, which led to death because of sin, came with such glory and splendor that the Israelites were not able to look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, how will the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, which allows us to be spirit-filled, fail to be even more glorious and splendid? Right? That's that more. That's some of that more that we've been kind of talking about. For if the ministry that brings condemnation, the old covenant, the law, has glory How much more does glory overflow in the ministry that brings righteousness, the new covenant which declares believers free of guilt and sets them apart for God's special purpose? The law is a ministry of condemnation. However, we have no more condemnation in Christ. The word condemn means unfit for use, like a condemned building. We had one downtown here. It caught fire. They condemned it. Now it's nice gravel space so if you feel unfit for use you're under condemnation which is not from God but from the law the law was given to discredit all your excuses it puts all the responsibility on you and holds you accountable for your actions Romans 3.20 says the law gave you knowledge of your sin it was a magnifier to show you can't come to God on your own goodness however in Romans 3.21 the law prophesied the end of itself Romans 7, 5, the law gave motion and light to it. It activated sin in our lives. Paul said, I didn't know what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. And then all of a sudden, I started coveting. Romans 7, 6 says, now we are delivered from the law, but now we have been released from the law and its penalty, having died through Christ to that by which we were held captive, so that we serve God in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter of the law. Sin is powerless without the law. The right use of the law was to reveal your need for a savior. The law will knock you on your back, so the only way you can look up is say, is up and say, God, I need salvation. The law will knock self-righteousness right out of you. So don't rely on your own self-righteous works. Again, people who think they can just be different are deceiving themselves. A bull can say and try to think, hey, I'm going to be a nice bull. You know, he's still a bull. And that's the problem with the thesis in that book, Anatomy of Peace, that I was reading. Their sin nature must be dealt with. Most of us are not allowing the love of God to flow in our lives because we truly don't understand God's love for us. 
and it's all based on the way he interacted with people in the Old Testament. That was different. It was for a different time. It was a different covenant. It was a different purpose. Sometimes we're treating God like the mafia. You know, the mafia will come around, Luigi, and say, hey, there's been a lot of arson, but if you pay me some money, I'll make sure your building don't burn down. But it's Luigi starting a fire, right? We do that with God all the time, too. If I go to church, pay my tithe, please protect my family. We don't have to do that anymore. According to 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, that's the right way to use the law. Now we know without any doubt that the law is good if one uses it lawfully and appropriately, understanding the fact that law is not enacted for the righteous person. So how many people here are righteous? All right, so we don't have to worry about the law anymore. But the law is for lawless and rebellious people, for the ungodly and sin, sinful. The law isn't for Christians because we're righteous. It is for the sinner. Use the law to show them their need for God and his proper standard to wake their conscience and reset their moral compass. The law removed deception that we are okay and self-righteous or I'm better than they are. So again, I know a lot of people and they're not believers and they're like, well, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, it's like, well, good according to whose standard? So the Old Testament law never gave us a true representation of God. And natural man can't understand spiritual things, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural unbelieving man does not accept the things, the teachings and revelations of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, absurd and illogical to him. He is incapable of understanding them because they are spiritually discerned and appreciated. And he is unqualified to judge spiritual matters. We must be born again to understand the spiritual things and people in the Old Testament couldn't be born again. So God had to relate to them through their minds. He said, you do that again and I'll kill you. A natural man understands that, right? You pick up sticks on the Sabbath and I will kill you. (laughs) Got it. It's also uh, an issue when you're talking. Janine was uh, sharing with me a thing that she had heard on... um, witnessing to non-Christian people and when you say something like so what do you think about Jesus to a non-Christian person they're like they don't think about Jesus you know there's people out there that actually don't think about Jesus don't even contemplate it so again we just have to be smart about it and you know how do you talk to people like that how do you start a conversation I think a lot of it is just building that relationship with them The negative effects of the law was it drove us from God. It makes us think, how could God love some sorry sinner such as me? But the law was only until John the Baptist, according to Matthew eleven twelve, And Galatians 3, 9 says, until the seed should come, that was Jesus. The law was only temporary. So hopefully by now I've convinced you that we don't need to be thinking about the law, right? Um, either put faith in the Savior and your actions. It's not a combination of the two. You're totally missing it if you're serving God out of fear. If I, as a child of God, don't act right, God's going to be angry at me. That's wrong thinking. Your motivation for serving God should be because you love Him and what He's done for you. But it's difficult to love a God that is revealed under the Old Testament law, right? So Old Testament law is the number one reason keeping people from recognizing who they are in Christ. It focuses your attention on sin and it keeps you focused on your sin, exalts your sin over what Jesus did for you. So 
So all you're thinking about is my sin and I'm not good enough and you're forgetting what Jesus did for you. If this was a scale and this was your sin, this would be Jesus. He's so much more than your sin. Sin's not an issue for the believer. The law keeps you carnally minded. It isn't made for who you are in Christ. Don't let your sin stop all the good things that God has for you. And the only leverage Satan had against us was sin. And now that that's not an issue, I mean, he's going to come to you still as the accuser of the brethren. He's going to still say, you missed it, you missed it, you missed it. Like, yep, doesn't matter. God loves me. So what does that say? And Paul, he's like, so does that say we can sin? And Paul says, God forbid, which is about the strongest thing you can say without being blasphemous in the Bible. Nope, sin will still uh, cause uh, problems in your life. And we'll get into that. So don't let uh, Satan condemn you because you're focusing on the law. Because he will. He'll condemn you, make you feel unworthy. But be bold as a lion because Jesus' righteousness is in you. So we're going to talk a little bit about what does it mean then for sins not being imputed. For the first 2,000 years, God was not imputing sin unto man. There were a few exceptions. Sodom and Gomorrah, Pharaoh, the flood. But for the first 2,000 years... God did not hold people's sin against them. To impute means to keep on the books, to keep record of, to put on your account. When you go into a store, you swipe your card, they charge that to your account. That's imputing it. So it's like going to the card, swiping your card, but it never gets charged to your account. That's what it means to not impute. The problem with that is people started to take God's lack of punishment as either approval or permission in Genesis 4.23, we see this where Lamech supposed that if Cain got by with murder, that he could get by with it as well. Because Lamech said, well, I'm justified. People started comparing themselves among themselves to justify their sinful behavior. We do the same thing today. Again, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Well, who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell, right? There's not a hell number one or a hell number two. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that when you continually offer yourselves to someone to do his will, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either slaves of sin, which lead to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Sin is an inroad for the devil to come into your life. Sin will destroy you, take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and make you stay longer than you want to stay. In the first 2,000 years, we see the human lifespan decreased by one-tenth, all due to sin. People are living 900 years, and you can just see it. And if God hadn't intervened, people probably wouldn't have made it to their teens. So for the first 2,000 years, God was not imputing sin to man, and then the law came. In Romans 5.13, it says, Sin is not imputed where there is no law. Sin was committed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone when there is no law against it. People sin before the time of Moses, but God didn't impute their sins, holding their sins against them before the law come, came. Another example is Leviticus 18. God says it's a sexual abomination to marry a half-sister. But did you know that Abraham married his half-sister? So when in God's mind did God figure out it was an abomination to him to marry a half-sister? 
do you think it was just happened when the law came or was it always? Because God doesn't change, right? So it was before then. He just wasn't holding Abraham accountable to that standard. Under the Levitical law, Abraham should have been stoned. But again, the law hadn't come yet, so God wasn't holding him accountable. Another example of this after Adam and Eve sinned were driven out of the garden. A lot of uh, theologies built around that. They were driven out because God couldn't fellowship with a dirty vessel and all this kind of thing. They were driven out so they couldn't eat of the tree of life and become immortal in their sinful body and fallen state. How would you like to do that? Live forever, but be blind? Because we think, well, I'm healthy, so it would be me living forever in this body, but I've got aches and pains. I wouldn't want to live like that forever. You know, arthritis, cancer, um, birth defects, blindness, deafness, all the corruption that came with sin, you would live forever in that state. So God intervened as an act of mercy. God did not leave the presence of man. Man left the presence of God. In Genesis 4.16, Cain went away from the manifest presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, wandering in exile east of Eden. So again, God didn't break off the relationship. Man did. God was still walking and talking with man after the fall. How do you think Cain and Abel knew about all the offering sacrifices? You know, I think God told him. He talked with him. God was not rejecting men according to their sin 30 years after the fall. The fall happened, and then we see Cain and Abel come and give an offering. Most people think that they're about 30 years of age at that time. Cain's reaction reveals a lot, though, right? When he kills Abel, and then God says, where's your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know. (laughs) God came to you and said, where's your brother? Be like, (laughs) right? So just that relationship they had is pretty casual. Cain's like, I don't know, dude. I'm not my brother's keeper. He's like, wow. So familiarity breeds contempt. Cain was speaking to God casually. He's the first murderer, casually responding and talking to God. He didn't respect and revere God anymore. This was the beginning of de-evolution of man. So what are we saying? Can we, since we're not imputed, you know, can we just go live in sin? God won't punish you, but you're giving Satan an inroad into your life if you do. He'll come and eat your lunch and pop the bag. Right? There will come a time of judgment towards the non-believers that reject Christ. And it's spoken of in Revelation where the blood will be three to four feet high for over 100 miles and it takes over seven years to clean up the carnage and bury the dead. When, we, when God judges people, we'll know it. We won't, think, we won't have to think, you think that's a judgment of God? We'll know it, right? Most people think that it's what they do that causes them to be a sinner. I did this, I did that, that made me a sinner. But the Bible says that sin entered through one man, Adam, according to Romans 5.12. What made you a sinner is not your actions of sin, rather that you were born with a sin nature that we all inherited from Adam. It's like if you're a bull, you're a bull. If you're a dog, you're a dog. I had a friend and he tells at the time he got a puppy, black lab, and it ate his kid's bicycle. Pedals, reflectors, everything, and passed him. And uh, mom was upset. And he's like, that's just the dog coming out in you. Right? So we need to get the dog out of us. Get a new nature. Because of the one that we all inherited from Adam. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all people, no one being able to stop it or escape its power. You sin as a result of your sin nature. What killed you spiritually was not based on your individual actions, but the sin nature that you inherited from Adam. God is not offended based on your actions. It's your nature that's offensive to him until you're born again. There's a difference in how God deals with people when he's not imputing their sins to them versus when he is. God still used imperfect people in the Old Testament, and he still uses imperfect people today. For that first 2,000 years, you think all the people that he used, right? Abraham married his half-sister and then uh, lied to Pharaoh. that Hey, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And he about had relations with his wife, and he's a scoundrel. And yet God used him. Yeah. And so God still uses imperfect people. I know I am one of them, right? So our righteousness in context of Romans 5, 8 through 10, God clearly shows and proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified, declared free of the guilt of sin by his blood, how much more certain is that we will be saved from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, it is much more certain, having been reconciled, that we will be saved from the consequences of sin by his life. That is, we will be saved because Christ lives today. How much more then, if you can accept the fact that God loved you while you were a sinner and gave his greatest gift, how much more must he love you now that you're accepted in Christ? Many Christians don't believe this, but I got a question for you. Before you came to the Lord, how much have you been praying, fasting, reading the word, tithing? Probably not much. You had zero good works to your credit, and God accepted you anyway. But now that you've been born again, you're certain God isn't going to give you what you need because you haven't been reading the word, you haven't been going to church, you haven't been tithing. If you got saved by faith, that's how you receive everything else. If it's in your faith in God, if your faith is in your God and Savior, not your self-righteous works. Galatians 3, 2-5, Paul asks this questions to him. He's like, this is all I want to ask of you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit as the result of obeying the requirements of the law? Or was it the result of hearing the message of salvation and with faith believing it? Are you so foolish and senseless? The Greek is, are you stupid? Is how that's translated. Having begun your new life by faith with the Spirit, are you now being perfected and reaching spiritual maturity by the flesh? That is, by your own works and efforts to keep the law? Have you suffered so many things and experienced so much all for nothing, if indeed it was all for nothing? So then, does he who supplies you with his marvelous Holy Spirit and works miracles among you do it as a result of the works of the law which you perform or because you believe confidently in the message which you heard with faith? In Colossians 2, 6 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord by faith, not of works, walk in union with him, reflecting his character in the things you do and say, living lives that lead others away from sin. 
So there are consequences to sin, but God not loving you is not one of them. God protected the first murderer, Cain. He extended mercy. Contrast this with the first person who violated the law. Picked up sticks on the Sabbath. They put him in a tent because they didn't know what to do with him. So they went to God and they're like, hey, this guy violated the law. What should we do? And God said, kill him. Like, wow. So there's still consequences to sin, but we shouldn't be living in condemnation, worried that God is going to judge us based on our behavior once we're born again. God never punishes his own. Now he does discipline us, but it's different than punishing. And he doesn't do bad things for our redemptive purpose to teach us a lesson. You know, Jesus said, if a boy asked for a fish, who'd give him a snake? And if he asked for bread, who'd give him stone? How much more is your father in heaven? So he does discipline us, but he does it in love. And so sin is the only thing Satan ever had against you. And if sin's no longer an issue, that means Satan can't do anything to you unless you believe his lies. And that's where Satan, that's the only power that he has, is the deception. Sin's been dealt with. But if you believe that all your sins are being held against you, all Satan has to do is show you where you missed it, and you quit. Again, you quit because you don't have any faith in yourself, and you don't want to have faith in yourself. You want to have faith in your Savior. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus is my righteousness. I'm no longer an old sinner. But it is from him that you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, revealing his plan of salvation and righteousness, making us acceptable to God, and sanctification, making us holy, and setting us apart for God, and redemption, providing our ransom from the penalty of sin. This revelation of God's love will cause us to live more holy on accident than we ever could have on purpose. So in Ephesians, Paul prays, about five more minutes. Who will give me five more minutes? Five, ten, fifteen, twenty. All right, I'm good. Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 1, 17 to 19 says, I always pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may grant you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation that gives you a deep and personal and intimate insight into the true knowledge of him. Again, that's what we're talking about. If we truly know God, who God is, when we go out to represent him, we'll have a true representation. We'll be successful in all that we do. Um, for I pray, I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very center and core of your being, may be enlightened, flooded with the light by the Holy Spirit, so that you will know and cherish the hope, the divine guarantee, the confident expectation to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, God's people, and so that you will begin to know what is the immeasurable and unlimited and surpassing greatness of his active spiritual power in us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his mighty strength. As we begin to get this revelation, we are now ready to be ambassadors for God, connecting with a lost world. We can truly represent God for who he is, saying what he says, and building relationships with people in our community. This ministry of reconciliation that we have been given starts with how God is not mad at us. While they were still sinners, Christ died for them. In Luke 2.14, the angels declared peace towards men from God. Jesus was born. The angels showed up. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And we know from experiencing life that we don't live in a world of peace. It's not peace among men. It's peace. God is at peace towards men. He's not mad at them anymore. 
As ambassadors of Christ, we're representing God. We shouldn't be preaching our doctrine based out of our tradition. Rather, say God what God says. Preach what Jesus preached. <clears throat> Don't preach the wrath of God. God loves us unconditionally. Do not preach, turn or burn. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. Repent or else. But God loves you. <laughs> right? This message is so confusing, and it's, people, it's no wonder people look at us kind of sideways. Um, I went to a conference one time, and one of the small group breakout sessions was how to share Jesus without being an idiot. So it was good. So I think sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Um, You can't convince people about the love of God by condemning them on one hand, showing them uh, that they're sinners, and then trying to preach the love of God. We must attempt to understand people who are not Christ's followers, what the world is like. Even Christ ate with the publicans and sinners. And again, it usually doesn't work to bring up spiritual things with them as they don't even consider or even think about those things. So we just need to start out where they are. Sometimes we just need to walk beside them, help them when we can, and allow the Holy Spirit to work on them and be ready when they ask us about the hope we have. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your heart set Christ apart as holy, acknowledging Him, giving Him first place in your lives as Lord. Always be ready to give a logical defense to anyone who asks you to account for the hope and confident assurance elicited by faith that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So can you see how this creates an environment and invites them to change? Jesus fellowshiped with sinners and didn't preach a sin consciousness or that our relationship with God was based on their behavior. Now, the woman who was committed or caught in the act of adultery, you know, he said, go and sin no more. So he didn't approve of it. He called it what it was, but he didn't condemn her either. God still fellowships with dirty vessels and still uses imperfect people. God's not mad or even having a bad day. If you're always believing God can do anything, but he hasn't done it for you, you're still operating under that law mentality. Start operating in the grace of God. If you don't feel worthy of God using you as a minister of reconciliation, you need to crawl out from under the law and start receiving through Jesus by the grace of God and not based on your performance. So I started out by saying wrong wrong knowledge produces wrong results and don't use the wrong tool for the job. If we're not getting the desired result, it usually stems from a misconception about God and how he deals with us. And we have to understand he dealt with people under the old covenant a different way for a different reason. They couldn't be born again. This wrong knowledge can then cause us to misrepresent God and who he is. If we misrepresent God, we will fail in our mission of making disciples. So hopefully I've challenged some of our wrong thinking and knowledge and we can start to see the desired results the world so earnestly needs. As we do what we can, to make the environment invitational by seeing people as real people with real problems, build relationships, and then bring them to Jesus where they can receive a new nature. As Christ commanded in Matthew 28 and 2 Corinthians 5, let us start to connect with Christ, connect with each other, connect with our community, and connect with the world. Amen?